Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tough talk. Ukraine and Russia meet as President Biden warns on sanctions. Pandemic parties and politics. Boris Johnson refuses to resign over COVID rule break claims. An Apple alarm. CEO Tim Cook targeted by an alleged armed stalker. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. Great to have you with us this Wednesday as we follow three developing stories. Wild swings on global markets as investors await today's key Federal Reserve policy statement. Plus the waiting game in the UK as Sue Gray readies her Boris Johnson lockdown brief. And the ongoing geopolitical uncertainty over Ukraine with the West now considering sanctions against Russian leader Vladimir Putin. We are waiting also to hear from Russia's chief negotiator on Ukraine after talks with France, Germany and Ukraine in Paris. And we will take you there live to that press conference room the moment that gets underway. In the meantime, Yuri Vitrenko is the CEO of Ukraine's state-owned energy giant Naftogaz. And he's going to be joining us later on in the show with his take on all the tensions, plus the de facto weaponization of energy supplies to Europe. The brief red flurry of activity in the meantime on global stocks has calmed and futures are higher after another volatile session during Tuesday's trade. Stocks attempted another dramatic late-day comeback, but they actually fell short this time around, with the Nasdaq dropping, as you can see there, 2.3%. There's a lot riding on tech earnings this week, as we've discussed already so far this week, and so far they've delivered. Microsoft currently up some 4% pre-market after reporting strong fourth quarter results and easing concerns over cloud computing growth going forward. Supply chains, however, they remain a manufacturing headwind for the tech sector in particular. The U.S. Commerce Department warning that chip inventories remain dangerously low and some global manufacturers have less than five days supply. We'll be discussing very shortly. It's an ongoing inflationary headwind for the Federal Reserve, though, as they set its monetary tightening course. More on all of that in just a moment. But first, the latest on Ukraine. The Ukrainian foreign minister says Russia has not assembled sufficient forces to launch a full-scale invasion. These comments come as officials from France, Germany, Ukraine and Russia are meeting in a bid to cool tensions. Meanwhile, U.S. President Biden is talking tough, warning any Russian action will warrant major repercussions. There will be enormous consequences if he were to go in and invade, as he could, the entire country. He or a lot less than that as well, for Russia, not only in terms of 
economic consequences and political consequences, but it'll be enormous consequences worldwide. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Kyiv for us and joins us now. Matthew, great to have you with us. Um, let's talk about the Ukrainians first and foremost and the talks that are taking place today. I mentioned that we're waiting to hear the Russian perspective on those talks from their negotiator. But does that in some way address the concerns that we've already heard from the foreign minister of Ukraine this week, that they're afraid of being left out of any negotiations and potential solutions too? Um, Well, I mean, they are concerned about that behind the scenes, although uh, I think the United States has done as good a job as it can do of trying to reassure the Ukrainians that there'll be nothing decided about Ukraine uh, without Ukraine's without Ukraine's approval. I mean, look, there are these negotiations going on today in Paris uh, between uh, France and Germany, Ukraine and Russia, and they're important because they will be looking at deciding or trying to sort of resolve the problem in the Donbass area, which is for the most part occupied by um, Russian-backed rebels or controlled by Russian-backed rebels. And they're going to be talking about a range of issues, including, uh, according to the Ukrainians, um, access for humanitarian purposes uh, and, and things like that, you know, and, and, and what can be done in that area to alleviate the suffering of the, of the population uh, that has been suffering over eight, eight years of, of conflict there. But, I mean, we shouldn't confuse that with the main negotiations that are still kind of bubbling away in the background. And that's the uh, written response that we're waiting from the United States to be delivered to Russia, to Russia's core demands. Its main demand being, of course, that NATO doesn't expand any further eastwards towards its borders and that Ukraine never, ever, in the words of the Deputy Foreign Minister, becomes a member of the Western military alliance. There's going to be a written response to those demands from Washington. We're expecting that sometime towards the end of this week. And then, of course, that sparks off a whole round of additional negotiations to see whether any compromise can be reached on any of the sort of paragraphs uh, that have been that, that, that may be identified uh, in that in that uh, that briefing document, and so you know, th- there is a sense in which, <clears throat> excuse me, the diplomatic channel is still very much very much alive, although it, it does seem to be moving at quite a slow pace. It's fascinating, isn't it? I was poring over some of the comments that were being made on all sides yesterday and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's comments yesterday stood out, um, sorry, earlier today stood out. He said if there won't be any constructive response and the West will continue its aggressive line, then as the president said multiple times, Moscow will take appropriate response measures. What do you make of that, Matthew? Uh, Well, it's a big question. I mean, this is the sort of, I suppose, threat or promise that the Russians have been making since the, this crisis was was uh, was begun, uh, arguably by them, um, saying that if we don't get what we want, if you don't meet our core demands, we will uh, institute what they've called in the past a military technical response. And so we don't really know what that is. I mean, of course, the big fear is that that response will be a military response, and that the hundred or thousand so troops uh, that are poised across the border, mainly on Russian territory. Uh, potentially with views coming into Ukraine uh, could be activated, an order could be given and another invasion of Ukraine could, could get underway, either a small minor incursion or, or a, much, a much broader one. But that's not the only option that the Kremlin has. They could also, you know, do things like, you know, escalate the situation 
by deploying missiles somewhere in the region, possibly in Belarus, possibly in the enclave of Kaliningrad, possibly in Crimea, that they could argue would satisfy their security concerns in Europe, um, but would stop short of triggering any sort of sanctions that have been promised by the United States and by others if Russia stages another invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and being very cautious of the translation here, it's the the position that they take that the West is the aggressor here and not vice versa. Matthew Trance, thank you for joining us from Kiev. there. We await that press conference, as we both mentioned. This could be a make-or-break moment for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We say that a lot, though. We are awaiting the results of an investigation into whether Number 10 Downing Street violated COVID restrictions by throwing parties while the rest of the country was under strict lockdown. Just take a listen to what the Prime Minister had to say this morning when asked if he'll leave office. Will he now resign? No, Mr. Speaker. Uh, but you know, uh, since he asked, since he asked, since he asks about about COVID restrictions, uh, let me just remind the House and indeed remind uh, the country that he has been relentlessly opportunistic uh, throughout. He has flip flopped from one side uh, to the other. And joining us now from outside number 10 Downing Street, CNN's Summer of Delaziz, putting a brave face on it and continuing to push back when he's been asked to resign. And we've seen that many times as well. He was also asked, what of the report when he receives it, will he release? Will he release and allow the public to see? And um, sort of calibrated, I think we can call the response on that, Summer. I would say evaded, Julia, to be frank, because it is an, a very critical issue here. Let's first go through what's happening, because these next few hours, as you said, could make or break Prime Minister Boris Johnson. There are now two investigations into allegations of multiple parties taking place just behind me here, his office and residence. The first, of course, has been going on for weeks now. That is the report led by senior civil servant Sue Gray, the Gray report. And that's the one we're expecting any moment now. And the separate one is the one that was launched yesterday, a police probe uh, after police say that some of these events raised to the level that they could have potentially breached COVID rules, that potentially Downing Street staff committed criminal offenses just to party. But this gray report, let's go back to it, because that is what Prime Minister Boris Johnson's party is going to be parsing through very carefully when it comes out. Yes, it's a civil report, so it is independent in a sense, but it's the prime minister who's going to get the report first, and he's going to have two critical decisions to make, Julia. How much of the report to release? And as you said, we've got a very evading answer there as to whether or not he's going to release the report in its entirety or just a summary or a redacted version. And then secondly, when to release that report, Julia. Of course, opposition lawmakers are sitting in their seats. They are waiting for that report. They want to go through it and be able to grill the prime minister, but also his own party here, Julia. It's making a very critical decision. Is Johnson still the man? Is he still fit for leadership? Or do they need to take the steps necessary to push him out? And we've already heard from the public, Julia, a snap poll. We just got the results of that this hour. Two-thirds of adults in the UK want to see the prime minister resign. But again, it all comes down to the Conservative Party, his own party, to decide whether or not Johnson stays in office, Julia. Yes, we await the delivery of the port and we do it when they decide to present it and what they decide to present. Uh, Salma Abdelaziz outside Downing Street there. Thank you. Now, as we mentioned, a waiting game in the UK and on global markets too. 
Investors bracing for the Fed's new policy statement out later today. And with apologies to Hollywood, investors fear a, quote, fast and furious pace to monetary tightening. Uh, Christine Romans is here. I think we have to stick to the actual title, which is too fast, too furious, which is <laughs> actually what investors fear. And as you and I discussed yesterday, um, the Federal Reserve has got no reason to want to shock the markets or to create instability, particularly in light of what we've already seen, I think, over the last few weeks. Absolutely. And they have to walk this really fine line here of showing the markets that they are on the case of inflation, but that they're not too much on the case of inflation, that it's something that seems real hawkish to markets. So that's kind of the interesting position that they're in right now. And don't forget, you know, this is like juggling flaming chainsaws for Fed Chief Powell and policymakers, because not only do they have to start signaling when they're going to raise interest rates, of course, they're not expected to raise rates today, but that they'll, when they're going to start to raise interest rates, but they have to end their extra bond purchases, right, that extra stimulus. And then they have to start talking about when they're going to, they're going to start to draw down all of the uh, assets that they've piled up over the past couple of years. So there's three big things that have to happen here, and the Fed's going to have to very very clearly illustrate to the markets what they're going to do about it. It reminds me, it's so interesting, Julia, it wasn't really that long ago. Many of us who cover the bond market and cover the Fed, you know, at the beginning of our careers, the Fed didn't even publicize what it was doing. I mean, it wasn't until 1999 that they were very clearly saying what they thought about expectations for the economy and very clearly telegraphing what they were doing. It wasn't until 2011 that they had a press conference. So in a way, it's it's so interesting that we're in this moment where the Fed chief is going to take to the cameras today and hopefully really clearly tell us what the Fed's plan is. Yeah, financial crisis and 20 years of easy monetary policy um, curtailed all of that. Right. Now it's about being as open. Yeah, but that, to your point, that's part of the problem now, perhaps. Yeah. Um, part of the challenge of the calibration of, of the response here comes down to supply chain issues and how quickly they'll leak out. We had a conversation with the head of the World Bank last week, and he said, look, raising interest rates raises credit costs on a relatively higher basis for smaller businesses. And these are perhaps some of the guys that can help address some of the supply chain issues. And well, we didn't half get an illustration of that, I think, overall with the supply chain issues in semiconductor chips and five days of inventory in certain cases. And that's a report from the Commerce Department saying that some of these mm-hmm. semiconductor uh, manufacturers are reporting about a five-day, less than five-day supply uh, of semiconductors on hand. Just for comparison, before the pandemic in 2019, that was something like, I want to say it was something like 40 days in 2019. And, and that was considered just-in-time uh, inventory. This is, this is just kind of unbelievable. There are some investments that are being made, don't forget. But these new plants in Ohio and elsewhere, they really won't be online and producing semiconductors until maybe 2024. So in the very near term, I think this is still going to be a supply chain issue this year, especially for semis. And the Commerce Secretary pointing out, Julia, that it doesn't take much. It could be a a tropical storm in Malaysia that could spread, you know, the, the impact of that could spread around the world when you just have, you know, four or five days supply of semiconductors on hand. Yeah, so many vulnerabilities when uh, supply is that tight. Everything, everything's a problem. Christine, thank you. You're welcome. Now we're learning some disturbing details about a woman who allegedly threatened, harassed and stalked the Apple CEO Tim Cook for more than a year. I just now granted Cook a restraining order after the company said the woman trespassed on Cook's property. CNN's Alison Kosick joins us now with the latest. Alison, great to have you with us. Um, the shocker for me beyond... The details that we got here was the fact that I just mentioned there that this has been going on for for a year or more. Yeah, more than a year, Julia. Great to see you as well. And we're learning about this 
uh, through court filings that were made late last week in this restraining order that Apple has uh, won. And we're learning about the woman who is being accused. And and CNN is not identifying her, but we are learning some of the language in this restraining order um, that that say that she uh, has exhibited erratic, threatening and bizarre behavior toward uh, the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. Um, Some of the things that that, uh, are alleged, that that she drove across the country from Virginia to California to uh, contact uh, Tim Cook. And on two occasions, according to these court documents, she trespassed on his property. The documents claim that uh, she said uh, she was his wife and that uh, they had twins together. In the filing, it's also believed, at least through Apple, that the woman may still be armed, may still be in the South Bay, San Francisco area, and that she intends to return to the CEO's house uh, or locate him in the future. Now, the court documents also say that for more than a year uh, that this woman sent threats directly to Cook, either through his email directly or on Twitter, where she also included pictures of ammunition and a loaded gun. She would also tag uh, Tim Cook in these tweets and send him personal messages that insinuated she wanted a sexual relationship. And speaking of emails, uh, between the uh, the months of October and mid-November in 2020, uh, the filing documents say that the woman sent Tim Cook nearly two hundred emails that showed a, quote, significant escalation in tone, becoming threatening and highly disturbing. And it was only in October of last year that police actually detained her after she trespassed on his private property, where she allegedly told law enforcement she could be violent. Oh, there's more. One more thing. Uh, The filing also claims that the woman tried to open fraudulent businesses in Tim Cook's name. And last month, she demanded that he pay her $500 million to, quote, forget and forgive. Now, there is going to be another hearing coming up on March 29 to see if this restraining order uh, will be extended. Julia? Yeah, I mean, it raises all sorts of questions about the level of protections that are in place for this kind of behavior. Um, Alison, thank you for that report there. Okay, coming up on First Move, Russia's leverage over Europe's energy supplies takes on a new dimension. We'll talk to the CEO of Ukraine's largest oil and gas company, Naftogaz. And after shipping one billion doses to nations in need, the global vaccination effort requires a cash injection of its own. The head of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, later in the show. Welcome back to First Move and a better tone for U.S. equity market futures as investors await today's Fed policy statement and Fed Chair Jay Powell's news conference. But Tuesday's late day sell off leaves the Nasdaq down some 13 percent year to date. The S&P 500 trading near that 10 percent correction level too. one of the worst starts to a new year on Wall Street ever, in fact. And you can see that performance in front of you. In the meantime, natural gas is up 7% on heightened fears over Ukraine and the potential for further pressure on European supplies. Brent crude trading close to $90 a barrel today, too. Now, as a direct consequence, the United States is investigating alternative fuel sources for Europe in case Russia cuts off its oil and gas or applies further pressures. The Biden administration says it's now working with suppliers from the Middle East, North Africa and Asia to bolster supplies to Europe. Russia currently provides around one-third of oil and gas imported by the European Union. And critics argue that certification of the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline will only increase Europe's energy dependency. The pipeline is designed to deliver Russian gas directly to Germany through the Baltic Sea, bypassing Ukraine. 
Joining us now is Yuri Vitrenko. He's the CEO of Ukraine's largest oil and gas company, Naftogas. So fantastic to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We clearly have much to discuss, but I just wanted to start by asking you, I know you have over 50,000 employees. You're, you're a father, you're a husband. How concerned are people? How afraid are you for, for your family at this moment? We are concerned, but we're not afraid uh, because uh, uh, we understand that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine eight years ago. Uh, we have been living uh, under this uh, very concrete risk of further invasions uh, since then. But at the same time, at the moment, uh, uh, we cannot see enough signs of an imminent uh, attack. So we believe that uh, despite all the risks, uh, uh, it's more like a panic that is hurting Ukraine at the moment than the real imminent strength, uh, threat of uh, further invasion. You also made some comments recently that I wanted to ask you about, which is that people shouldn't panic, that Russia can utilize that kind of instability and, and insecurity within Ukraine, even perhaps to suggest a different leader for Ukraine, a different president, one that might have sympathies or greater sympathies towards Russia. Do you see that as perhaps a greater risk? Yes, exactly. Because uh, this panic uh, hurts Ukraine economically. Uh, and that's what uh, Putin wants. Uh, he wants some economic problems for Ukraine. So then it's easier to uh, overthrow uh, the government. And then um, he would have a puppet government that would legitimize uh, uh, Russian uh, control and Russian troops uh, here in Ukraine. So that's why it's important to be strong and not to let it happen. There are other potential leverage points, too. We spoke to the head of the IEA last week, and he said that Russia is deliberately restricting supplies of gas to Europe beyond the contracted amount. They could provide more and they aren't. They've de facto weaponized the supply of energy. Um, you've been concerned about this for a long time and have been warning about this. Do you think this justifies your concern over the certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Uh, yes, I don't want to say I told you so, but that's exactly what we have been telling uh, the US government, the German governments uh, for quite a while. Uh, uh, Putin used gas as a weapon even before the joint statement of the US and German government. But after the statement, uh, he started to uh, do it even more intensively and into the face uh, of, of the entire world. So uh, they uh, decreased the supplies of gas, uh, they blackmailed Moldova, uh, they scared off some uh, ships in the Black Sea that were doing some uh, seismic studies for us to produce more of Ukrainian gas. So they are using gas as a weapon as we speak. And then, of, of course, uh, something that needs some reaction uh, from the West. You might not be able to say, uh, I told you so, so to the, uh, the United States, because I think they share your concerns and have, and have voiced that. But you could perhaps say, I told you so to the German government. What is the new German government saying to you and what assurances are they providing? Currently, they're using this benefit of being a new government because uh, I was telling the previous government. Uh, but um, again, their new government is not that new any longer. So that's why they also need to make this decision. They need to decide if they are with the free world or they want to collaborate with Putin and with Russia in, their, in his fight with the free world. So in this particular case, uh, uh, we do believe and we're telling them that they should uh, uh, punish Russia for using gas as a weapon. They also 
should, they should also uh, prevent Nord Stream 2 and Gazprom in general to be above the rules in Europe because Nord Stream 2, for example, this uh, project is not compliant with European rules at the moment. That's why it, it cannot become operating. So it's a moment of truth uh, for the German government, for the new German government, to show that they are with the free world and they uh, deserve to be uh, one of the leaders of the uh, United Europe. You could argue it costs them and it costs the German public, if, if others in Europe as well, not to certify this, but arguably it it hurts Ukraine if they do. You've also said the certification of this is effectively a green light for Russia to launch a full-scale military aggression. I'm quoting you. What do you mean by that? Exactly. Mm. Uh, Putin, the, his plan was to um, build Nord Stream 2, then to move all the transit flows from Ukraine to Nord Stream 2, and then it would be easier for uh, Russia uh, to further invade Ukraine without any consequences on energy trade with Europe. And then he hoped, and probably he still hopes, that... Uh, Again, European politicians will express some deep concerns, but these deep concerns won't stop Russian tanks. So basically, he will be able to get away with this uh, uh, further invasion. That was his plan. And uh, luckily, Nord Stream 2 uh, is not operating. And that's why if uh, Russia further invades Ukraine, uh, it would affect energy trade with Europe uh, and it would cause more than just deep concerns from uh, European politicians. Uh, Putin uh, probably understands it. You know, it's interesting, you, you, your earlier point about complying with EU law as well. I mean, part of this involves uh, providing Europeans with greater choice, perhaps, over where they get their gas. D do you provide a viable alternative? Yes, of course. Ukrainian gas transmission system is much bigger than Nord Stream 2. It's currently underutilized. Uh, so we have... Uh, even free capacity, like two times bigger than the whole capacity of Nord Stream 2. Uh, also, it's not that we want some kind of privileges. Uh, we say that uh, there are European rules. These rules are about a level playing field, some fair competition, and uh, off-takers should be given a, a chance to decide them tell, uh, themselves if they want, even if they buy Russian gas, if they want to bring this Russian gas uh, to Europe through Ukraine or through any other pipeline. And by the way, uh, what we are saying that uh, maybe somebody hopes that Nord Stream 2 will help uh, um, the market uh, in the uh, short term bringing more gas. First of all, it's not the case because Putin is also demanding long-term contracts, new uh, commitments from Europe uh, to buy more gas from Russia. And it really is against the Green Deal agenda of the European Union, decarbonization uh, initiatives. But at the same time, it just shows that Putin wants uh, Europe to be even more dependent uh, on Russian gas supplies. And if they are even more dominant, then they would further abuse uh, the market, abuse their dominance to the detriment of consumers. So consumers will suffer. That's why nobody should have these illusions that projects like Nord Stream 2, uh, Gazprom above the rule uh, of law in Europe, is somehow beneficial to Europe. That's a very wrong um, idea. You have um, experience in dealing with Putin directly. You battled with him over gas transit contracts. I, I vividly remember. Um, how do you meet Vladimir Putin as an equal in these negotiations? What does the West need to be prepared to do in your mind? And are they doing enough today? 
You rightly pointed out that we had this successful experience uh, uh, when we made Putin pay uh, uh, $3 billion under the decision of the Stockholm arbitration that we won. It was the largest uh, commercial arbitration in the world. Uh, they claimed over $100 uh, billion and they lost. Uh, and we also made him sign this new transit contract. And uh, a successful uh, re or recipe for success uh, when you're negotiating uh, with Putin is to be able to confront him, to be able to say no, to have uh, other options. Uh, so only then you have, uh, as is many other negotiations, uh, um, you can have uh, a proper and positive result of such negotiations. Yeah, don't and that's why uh, the West should not be, uh, yes, exactly. And the West should not be afraid to confront Putin to show its strengths. And I pers I'm personally sure that the West is much stronger than Russia at the moment, economically and even military-wise. So the free world should not be afraid to show its strengths. Yuri, great to chat to you. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Yuri Vitrenko there, the CEO of Naftogas. We'll speak soon. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A program backed by the World Health Organization to get vaccines to some of the world's poorest nations is facing a cash crisis. The COVAX initiative, which has already shipped over a billion vaccine doses to poorer nations in the world, needs a cash injection of over $5 billion to continue its rollout. The money is needed to buy basic equipment, things like syringes. It says until the funds can be found, it can't accept any more donations of vaccines. Dr. Seth Berkeley is chief executive of the Gavi Vaccine Alliance that co-leads COVAX. Dr. Berkeley, Seth, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, firstly, congratulations to you and the team on delivering the one billionth dose. And I know now you've done more, but I believe we have to start this conversation with the desperately needed cash you require. So thank you, Julia, for having me. And you're absolutely right. The role here is to try to make sure the whole world is protected because we're only safe if everyone is safe. Now, the good news is we've had the fastest and largest rollout in history with the poorest countries, the AMC 92, having 45% coverage already with one dose of 33%. But the low-income countries are lagging well behind that. And so we need finance to help accelerate their absorption, to be able to buy more doses so that we can deal with boosters and potentially new variant vaccines, as well as finance to accept the donations that countries have generously made available, but have not come with syringes or delivery costs or insurance costs that are necessary to get those to the people who need them. Is that too much to ask for? That they do you know, provide. It's yeah. It, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the, the IMF did a study and talked about the cost of this pandemic to be somewhere around $9 trillion. And the question we've seen is every time we have a new variant, we see shutdowns, we see economic distress. And the challenge for us is to stop this pandemic so we can go back to normal. I would make an argument that this is absolutely cheap compared to the cost of just continuing to have these um, new variants move through the populations and continue to cause a global chaos. 
Yeah, and I'll expand upon that. Four and a half trillion dollars of that cost is borne by the richest nations in the world. So this is not charity. This is simply doing what's required to protect themselves, never mind anybody else. Um, who's going to provide that $5.2 billion that you require? What kind of response have you had since you've gone out there literally and said, look, we can do this, but we need more help? Well, first of all, I have to say that the, the donor community has been extraordinary. So a year ago, when we launched our first fundraising request, you know, at the end, we, we were able to raise more than $10 billion to buy the 2.8 billion doses um, that we have along with the donations. And they did that when they didn't have place in their budgets for that finance. The U.S., for example, $4 billion of support. So very, very generous, understanding the importance of that. Of course, it's always a challenge when this is something that isn't planned for. And certainly this pandemic was not planned for. I know economic times are tough, but this is the not only the right thing to do, but as you say, in a self-interested point of view, we need to be doing that. Yeah, and you can compare what was a very generous amount of money given by the United States, and we use those as an example to the 7 to $10 trillion that they spent supporting their own economy and their own people. So, again, um, keeping the perspective here on the amounts, even with the generosity that was provided, is important. What's the risk, uh, Seth, that now that we're talking about third doses, booster doses, even fourth doses in some countries, that the inequality that we've seen that's been such a challenge over the past two years is exacerbated because the richer nations are so focused on that that, again, we, we end up neglecting the, what, 3.2 billion people in the world that still haven't seen one dose. Well, well the good news, um, Julia, is that the, the industry has stepped up and we're seeing larger and larger productions. I mean, way back at the beginning when we set our goals, we didn't even know if we could make a vaccine, much less the types of quantities that have been made. Um, of course, we do have to worry about boosters, but boosters, I think, are now relatively factored in. Where we do worry about inequality is if it turns out that we need um, new variant vaccines. And obviously, those will roll off the assembly line in small numbers initially. And again, we need to see that the most vulnerable people everywhere in the world get those and not that they just be used in high income countries, because, again, we'll be in a position where we threaten the whole world if we don't use them as strategically as we can. Dr. Berkeley, there's also a difference between providing vaccines, supplying vaccines and actually getting those vaccines into people's arms. The, the logistics of this are, are incredibly complicated, as, I know, as you know better than anyone else. And I was sort of heartbroken to read a story in December of, of Nigeria having to destroy a million vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine doses, and they've had to do others because they passed their expiry. Can we tackle that better this year? And is that partly to do with what's being supplied? And actually, it's too close to expiry, and actually that makes it cheaper. So, of course, what um, we need to stress at the beginning is that wastage has been extremely low up until now. There's always wastage with vaccines. That's true in wealthy countries as well as in, in lower income countries. But countries have taken this seriously. Now, sometimes they get vaccines and they just cannot roll them out as fast and as, as they can. And then what we have to do is see if there's other countries that can take them. And that's what we've been able to do for most of the doses that have been refused but not all of them. Also, at the beginning, in the original dose donations, we had a challenge with 
um, people receiving doses late in their cycle. We've worked mm. very hard with donors for two reasons. One is to get the cycle planning worked out so we know where we can send them, but also so countries have time to plan. So that is getting better. We want to see no wastage at all. These products are too valuable to be wasted. But again, there will be a little. We just want to keep it as minimal as possible. Lastly, your question about getting them into arms is the critical one. Developing countries know how to vaccinate. They just need the time to plan. There's 20 to 25 countries that have low absorption now. We're stepping up working with each one for a bespoke plan so that they can vaccinate their populations. I have faith that they can do it. It just takes a little bit longer time. And Seth, very quickly, and it goes to the point I think that you made about allowing these countries time to plan. You're talking about wanting to create a vaccine pool and we've got lots of different vaccines that need to be kept in different conditions now. Will this help with that? We're going to send you X. This is what's required. This is when it's coming. Go plan. Julia, that's exactly right. And we have fabulous vaccines. As you know, the Pfizer vaccine that's quite common needs to be stored in minus 80 degrees. We've never done that before. General vaccines, we've done it for Ebola. Um, so that took a lot of building up fridges. Um, we have other vaccines, Moderna minus 20, uh, AstraZeneca two to eight degrees. So we have to make sure countries have adequate storage space for each one of those vaccines. And that the health workers know how to use them. Over time, we'd like to move to more temperature-stable vaccines and simplified um, uh, regimens to make this as easy a rollout as possible. Fingers crossed. Dr. Seth Berkeley, thank you so much for the work that you and your team are doing um, all over the world. We appreciate you, the CEO of Gavi there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's take a final look at the markets before we wrap up here. So much welcome green on the screen for Wall Street in early trade. A positive tone now. A lot, though, could change if the Federal Reserve issues a hawkish policy statement later today. Don't be surprised by a more measured Fed tone. However, the central bank may not have investors back this time. The so-called Fed put may be kaput. But policymakers certainly don't want to derail the economic recovery with shock and awe tightening. And I think that's the key point. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Marketplace Europe is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.